0: Welcome back, everybody. It's Dr. Scott from LA Not So Confidential. I'm here with the malevolent and brilliant (laughs) Dr. Shiloh.
1: Hello, I'm here. (laughs) 90. We're 90, Scott. What
0: the farg? I know. I really can't believe it happened. Like it's <laughs> it's kind of amazing. It is. It's it's quite amazing given the fact that we, you know, I we and both enjoy doing this so much and yet when we go in our research wormholes. Yeah. Like there's a lot of work that goes into this and I'm going, wait, we both do this on top of full-time jobs. This Can you imagine we crazy.
1: calculated this like 90 episodes so we have sat down and done this 90 times. Well, maybe a couple more than that, because in the early days, we've lost recordings and <laughs> to record yeah. oh. full episodes over again.
0: <laughs> yeah, those are the um, days.
1: But it's it's crazy, but we love this kind of crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do this crazy with anyone else.
0: But Thank you. I feel exactly the same way. <laughs> I, well, I, I wouldn't be able to. Uh, I mean, I might be like, if I go really off the deep end and I start doing one myself, that's just, it'll be like Creed, like that episode of The (laughs) Office where they tell Creed he's got a website, but it's really just a Word document because it's so disturbing.
1: I love it. Yeah.
0: The other thing is, I mean, we've, and we've said this before, but the amount of wonderful people that we have met, um, our listeners, Mm -hmm. our Patreons. Even the people that don't like us. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> great that you listened and you posted something. And They're then all, our, interesting. all of our podcast buddies, Rebecca I Sebastian, know. Jason Usry. Uh,
1: Tim and Lance.
0: Tim and Lance, the champagne ladies. The champagne yeah, girls. The champagne I, call them,
1: girls. Uh, I wonder if they'll be on Dallas again. We got
0: to check in with them.
1: Yeah. So speaking of that, a couple yeah. of events coming up. CrimeCon. Yep.
0: That's the big one. CrimeCon is is trundling down the road, folks. And if you are going to be there, first of all, please come by and hang out with us and say hi. And also remember that the use the code CONFIDENTIAL for a 10% discount off a standard badge, which is really cool. And we are basically what you were saying. We are now committed to TCPF, the True Crime Podcast Festival, which was the conference that broke our cherries, basically. I know.
1: I know. we going to a conference.
0: <laughs> we're really hoping that we'll do a panel of some sort. I wish Nick and Jessa were still on the scene. Maybe they'll come back at some point. I know. But maybe know. we kind of have to cheat on them, right? We got to find somebody else and we'll I cheat on so. them. I think so.
1: We'll definitely submit something. So if you guys want to see us do a presentation or panel... Let us know if you're going for sure and let the ladies at True Crime Podcast Festival know that you would like to see us. Or we'll even if you're not show.
0: coming, email them anyway <laughs> and demand it.
1: Demand it, damn demand it. Yeah. It. So that's gonna be in Dallas in August. Yeah, that that's gonna feel awesome. I think there'll be more new people. I'm gonna try and get lots of people to go to that one.
0: Bring your baby corn starch powder and your anti frizz <laughs> because it is gonna be hot in humid. Texas
1: in yep. August. Woohoo. And then we are also committed to actually in September going to Savannah for the Savannah Crime Expo. Yeah. So, be back-to-back trips to the south.
0: That'll be fantastic. For us. Yeah.
1: I know. I know. So, listener question episode, we're going to start with questions from our patrons. They get first dibs, of course. And we know these folks are hardcore because we even we didn't just get questions. We got requests for further research on <laughs> info from topics that we have presented before and sort of yeah. adjacent topics. Yeah. If we have time, we'll get to those. But we are not your research slaves, people. <laughs> <laughs> questions.
0: Not research. Just kidding. Although, we love if that was a good paying job. I would love that.
1: But yeah, I mean, listener question episodes and all transparency are so we don't have to do so much research so but do you want to ask our first one yes so
0: patreon question casey dilla what are both of your honest opinions about the true crime fan section who claim to be quote unquote obsessed with serial killers and seem to romanticize them or who will buy or wear shirts hoodies buttons that say things like choke me like bundy is there something psychological going on there? Am I just put off by those people because I don't share the same fascination in serial killers? Excellent question. Great Really, question. really great question. You want to yeah. start?
1: Sure. Yeah. So you asked us to be honest. I think this is something that is a spectrum to me because actually talking about true crime podcast festival, I remember when we went to one of the events that was taking place at a bar. Do you remember the woman that was wearing the dress with all the pictures of the serial killers on it?
0: Yeah. that I thought that was was
1: cute. Like cute in that like she fit. There was this whole sort of look going on. It was just your classic serial killer, like mug shots and black and white. And we took a been, picture like, with put her on
0: fabric. Right. And it right. was very cool and very stylish. Yeah,
1: it was. And so, you know, I think about something like that. I think, okay, at an event where this is what we're all talking about in the genre of let's not let's call it what it is, entertainment. It fits for me. I don't feel grossed out by that. If someone was wearing a shirt that said choke me like Bundy, that feels way different.
0: I mean, there's Gallows humor yeah. and certainly I enjoy Gallows humor, but that seems there's something that that it disturbs me about that because right. it's that's not healthy kink. You know, that's like No, it's, it's way it's way beyond that.
1: Yeah, it's. I don't even know what it is. But when, as our patron puts it here, you know, people who are obsessed with serial killers, I think that is kind of weird at this point. Like, aren't we kind of over that whole thing? But then I look back. So when I was an undergrad, yeah, I was devouring every John Douglas book, every Roy Hazelwood book, right? And everything on serial killers. But I feel like I was intrigued with the attempts of law enforcement to sort of understand and predict the behavior. I wasn't obsessed. I I would say I was obsessed. I mean, I devoured all of it, but I wasn't obsessed with the serial killers themselves, more with the investigations, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I have had that phase and I think a lot of people have had that phase. That's why I say, I think it's kind of weird if people are still sort of in that phase. But, you know, as again, like back to those sort of very tasteless t-shirts, the glorification, the romanticizing, like she says, I'm just over it. And I I don't know about psychological, but I was actually having a conversation with somebody the other night because I'm... So I'm, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm finishing my, my leg sleeve t- tattoo. I figured I'm going all the way, I'm getting my whole leg done. So I am putting... To
0: I'll look say like I, a leg?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a big Are you actually going to make it's it look like what? a human
0: leg now? <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am incorporating a tattoo that is actually an ode to a crime victim. It's going to be very personal to me. It's going to be something that is not stands out as something that's obvious. And so I was talking about this with someone and we were kind of comparing and contrasting that to the women who get the bite marks of Ted Bundy tattooed on Mm. them. Have you heard of that?
0: No, I have not. Yeah. So So he left, he left bite marks on his victim. Yeah.
1: he, He left bite marks in certain areas of his victim's body. And there are women out there who get those same tattoos in those same places. And so we were Comparing and contrasting these things. And so, you know, that I think that is gross and disgusting and kind of that's somebody who would wear this this shirt. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, what are your thoughts?
0: I think it's complex. I think the whole thing is complex because this and this is also a very meta conversation because you and I, we are in this milieu now and it's something, you know, like I think gallows humor. On a primal level, like if we were to get very like, Jungian talking about archetypes and sort of shared consciousness, this is a way to push back the, against the darkness of humanity is to laugh at it. So I think that there's a place for it to be able to hold things lightly, mm-hmm. but... The difference in some cases, I think, are when the victims are still alive. You know, like when there are people whose lives have been horrifically impacted by these crimes, you know, would you want to be wearing a Ted Bundy T-shirt if one of his victims' grand nieces or grandchildren or relatives was to pass you on the street? Like, how, how do you think that would be for them?
1: Well, and he has surviving victims that are well
0: still alive. Right, right. Yeah. I mean my interest in all of this is born out of an attempt to understand like an alien concept, which I think is where most people start. It's like, how could this happen? How could they do that? Why would they do that? And there's this blurry place for some people at certain points in their lives where interest and fascination lie and mingle with each other. And then, Hopefully, you know, as you evolve, you take a different perspective, or as you mature, you grow, you age, you evolve, you take a different perspective. I mean, like we're saying, there were lives lost and destroyed because of the actions of this particular person that is getting so much attention. There's also this whole idea that there was trauma and genetics that played a part in why this happened. Mm -hmm. There's societal dysfunction And why this happened. So, yeah, I'm still fascinated, but I'm I'm still taken aback when somebody goes, yeah, the Green River Killer is my favorite, which is something that actually happened to me. And I was so surprised. I mean, I didn't even push it further because I'm going, where do I go with that? I mean, they could have been referring to something that was like, I love this case because of the challenging aspects of it, the complexity. Mm. But there's also like wearing a T-shirt with posters of Manson's face. Yeah, you know, looking completely insane. It's like, why? What? What is behind that? So, I mean, yeah. I think it's complex. I think it's about where people are in their lives. But, you know, the whole idea in the journey of life, I think, as a clinician, is that we're on a road of self-discovery and self-actualization. And, you know, things that you found funny when you were a kid on the schoolyard aren't really funny anymore. Yeah. and. Yeah. You know, your relationship to the world around you is supposed to mature. Now, I think that there is a place for humor and interest. But yeah, like if we it's also like an example of patriarchy and one of its most virulent forms is that when we think of it in terms of like really go to the edge with hebristophilia about women who are obsessed mm-hmm. with inmates, with male inmates is. If we flipped the gender or the sex dynamics on that, and like it was a a man obsessed with a female killer, or, you know, it it just doesn't bear out the same way. Right. Right. And that's all because we still have these societally ingrained views on sex and gender and masculine ideation, masculine role norms, those kind of things. Yeah,
1: And I'm all for people having obscure even macabre interests whatever it's fine I think it's just a way in which you're gonna be cheeky about it that can be off-putting that's it's, a
0: great way to put it I really especially like especially
1: when it gets specific like if you have like this this bundy reference but I am someone who has a t-shirt that says my favorite essential oil is chloroform <laughs> so but
0: and I like, have a t-shirt <laughs> that says the owl did it you know, well, like, yeah, you right, know? right. And some, yeah,
1: which we know that the owl did do it, but
0: anyway, somebody um, got so, so mad at me I know. for that T-shirt, and not because it was inappropriate, because somebody died, but because they really thought that I believed the owl defense.
1: I'm not rolling it out. You're not hey, rolling it out. I'm just well, saying. Pin no. Okay, she has a she has a follow up question. <laughs> also, how do you feel about other true crime podcasts that seem to make light of murder? or are considered a, quote, comedy true crime podcast. Scott, thoughts?
0: You know, I, I can't help but wonder about this because, I look, you and I are trained mental health providers. So maybe by virtue of the necessity of us having to see a big picture, it just isn't as appealing in mm-hmm. that way clearly there's a market, but I also think that people are drawn to the relationship between the hosts, especially like My, F- my Favorite Murder, yeah. it's it's the relationship between the two of them that is what draws people in. Yeah. And yeah, they talk about a little true crime content, but they're also talking about the cats, and then they riff on their own comedy stuff, which is brilliant. I think it's just brilliant, and especially when their fans animate some of their short conversations. Oh my it's God, it's so hilarious. It's so yes. great. But I really do think that it's more than about the, the relationship between them. Mm-hmm. I think that again, I want to just step lightly and carefully around crimes. Even when we did the recent one regarding the Barclay Hotel, mm-hmm. you know, this like poor kid was just brutally, brutally murdered and the family was taken through the mill. And it was just an ugly, ugly crime. But it does have almost a hundred years of distance. Between, but then here's what happens is you and I start diving into the research and you start getting pulled in. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not just reading a Wikipedia page and being done with it. We're actually looking. We went to the museum, we looked at the actual crime scene photos, and we heard about all this other information. So it does kind of change where you are. But look, I'm not going to judge. It's like if that's where you are. That's where you are. But all of this being said, the loss of life is tragic in every instance for at least someone who's involved. You know, we're going to always be able to find examples of individuals who have Little in terms of a healthy interpersonal life, and some they'll do some absolutely dumbass thing that gets them killed, and then we can all shrug our shoulders and go, Well, stupid is a stupid does, but you know, that was somebody's kid, and like yeah. I know I'm projecting here, but I just think we should all be careful about that, yeah. And, I, and I, you know what? You can probably go through the last 89 podcasts that we have recorded and find instances of wearing and being a complete hypocrite, but I just want to share this.
1: Right now. <laughs> wait, wait a. To... Cut it off at the pass. <laughs> no, I, I'm anticipating um, it. <laughs> I was a fan of my favorite murder. I found them genuinely funny and charming. And you know, Karen is a stand-up comedian, so it's it's like this is her job. And if someone tries to come along and do that same formula, it's not going to be the same. And I really don't think anyone has ever replicated it like them. Agreed. But I am very much over that formula of podcasts. And I really never gravitated toward any others. I've tried some, you know, some that have done very well. And when they all try to mimic that, to me, it just falls short. And honestly, it blows my mind that there are massive audiences for a number of shows like that that constantly crave that material and keep them going and keep those people very, very rich (laughs) at this point.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know what? I'll, I'll be right up front. I'm a, I do have a little bit of sour grapes. Like I, I would like that too, but you know, on the other hand, look at the people that we are so close with and admiring of. I mean, I think I look at, I listened to Jamie Rice And like what she does is so specific and beautiful. And I would even go so far as to say elegant because there's something Mm -hmm. about the way she structures her stories. She's got Mm -hmm. that beautiful voice. You know, there's something about it that I think is incredibly unique. And then I see. You know these don't other name ones.
1: Names, don't I'm names. not. I'm not going to name names. I
0: swear <laughs> to God, I'm not. Because you know what? God love them. They're doing something right. They're making somebody happy, and they're making some money off it. So who am I to judge? Like totally. I'm nobody. Yeah. And I. But it. Like I'll say with you is like sometimes it's just not my cup of tea. But you know, look, ours is a different thing. We're sort of academics in a way, and you know, we have fun with what we do. But I don't think that I think that our listener is a special kind of listener. I mean, I really do. Yeah, I think it's so people I. that want to know all this extra information because otherwise, you know, I'm sure this would bore the hell out of some people, but that's why we have oh, the totally. great audience that we do. We have a great yeah, audience.
1: Definitely. Definitely. All right. So our lovely patron, Abby, Abby. Blackbird. Yeah. Hi, Abby. She says, any episodes that you want to redo or do a deeper dive? Oh,
0: wow. Another one. This good is a one. great question. Yeah.
1: I actually, I looked through our entire catalog today and way back Episode five, we talked about paraphilias, just kind of in general. I think we did highlight voyeurism because we covered the voyeur, both the book and the film, The Voyeur. And I actually have this down on our idea document, but I would really like to do a series on the different illegal types of paraphilic disorders. So maybe that's something we can do down the road or do a special series on. I think obviously it folds over with crime if we do the illegal ones, but also maybe just talking about the ones that are outlined in the DSM or something like that. I don't know. That stuff is just my jam
0: always. (laughs) No, I, I love that idea. I mean, that could be, there's a lot of ways we could do that. That could be an entire offshoot series on paraphilias, or it could be a whole new True. one. Yeah. And who knows, we have some things in the work where maybe we'd have an opportunity to do some extra ones because we just yeah. have so much free time right now. So much time. But seriously, it would be cool. <laughs> what about you? You know, I would be interested in deeper dives into couples that kill mm, uh, okay. just to get beyond the surface level of what every investigation discovery Documentary about and I love that stuff even though like it is it is the same story told over and over again it's like it's like listening to the huddled up under the covers listening to the same cautionary fairy tale but what I would like to do is like really in the way almost that we know the research on Bonnie and Clyde and kind of understanding how they fell in with each other and doing more deep research on that how does it happen beyond sort of this this accepted or surface understanding of dominant and passive personality typologies, and then that in terms of an overlay of criminogenic thinking. I mean, there's just so much diagnostic stuff in family history I'd love to look at. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. The dynamic and not even just romantic relationships, but, you know, duos of killers together is just endlessly fascinating because you think of like, okay, one person, but really two people were on board.
0: Right. Because I I think that that's actually something that people overlook is that a duo gives implicit and tacit permission to each other to do horrible things. Mm. As well okay. as like the flip side is that, you know, sometimes you can have a great idea, but you won't give yourself permission to go out and be an entrepreneur or go out and do something wonderful until somebody says, no, you, you can do this or no, we can do this together and then yeah. flip it back. And it's the same thing that drives terrible crimes, I think.
1: Oh my God. It's another podcast idea.
0: Yeah. So we're, we have an, the next question who asked that is it's that Abby? Abby as well. Yep. Okay. So Abby, thank you. Another great question. And the question is, have you ever heard of main character syndrome?
1: again with the syndromes exactly <laughs> no i had i had to go and look it up i just did some quick little Google Research found a Psychology Today article about it, and for our audience, they define it as main character syndrome being a vague term, which has more media and social media usage rather than scientific. The term refers to a wide range of behaviors and thoughts, but at root, it is when somebody presents or imagine themselves as the lead in sort of a fictional version of their life. Usually their own, although sometimes disturbingly somebody else's, and presents that quote unquote life through social media. And then I saw, I didn't get to read it, but there was like a related article about how Sex in the City is kind of a version of main character syndrome. But I'm like, that's a television show. Of course, it's going to be a main character. So I don't know. I, I don't have too many thoughts on this. I don't give it too much weight. I f- feel like this is pretty commonplace these days with social media use and how we use it including yours truly. I've been on it way too much lately. And so of course we tend to curate and be the center of our own world, but I guess it's just a way to project that to other people.
0: Yeah. I, I'm glad you use that particular term curate because that is particularly intrinsic to someone who wants to be a social media star or an influencer. Mm-hmm. And you know, you kind of have to buy into it. I I mean if that's The road you're going to be on, you you are going to have to really buy into it. I hope that you would have enough insight to understand whether or not you have something to offer. That can be there could be a big gap in between,
1: just like true crime (laughs) podcasts.
0: Exactly, exactly. Right. (laughs) Look, so I wasn't familiar with that term, but I do think it's sort of in this whole family, and maybe even like an idea of a spectrum. Like maybe that's a really light version of a delusional disorder that is sometimes described as the Truman Show syndrome. Again like you said, it's not a correct use of the syndrome term. We went over that in the last couple of episodes. Please go back and educate yourself. But Truman Show Syndrome is a delusion. It's a type of delusion in which a person believes that they are existing within a staged reality show. And the term was coined on uh, Reddit, I believe, or film boards, film discussion boards, Uh by two brothers, uh, Dr. Joel Gold, who is a psychiatrist, and his brother, Ian Gold, who is a neurophilosopher. That's actually a thing. I had to go and look that up and it's fascinating because it's not as woodly doodly as you think it is it's the idea of understanding through science the science of the brain and anatomy and physiology of what consciousness is and what cognition is. Cool. So because there's a well, there's a lot that we know, there's a lot that we don't know. So we have to have a philosopher who will extrapolate and sort of ask the what ifs. So I think that's really fascinating. And they had a conversation after seeing the movie about Jim Carrey and the Truman Show. And although the delusion is not officially recognized in the DSM, it is described in different media forms, and it would fall under delusional disorder. You know, like, mm-hmm. and we talked about gang stalking before, and gang stalking, right. that would be a really horrific version of being on stage all the time because you were right. being chased by your audience, basically. Mm-hmm. But the concept for this type of belief has been around for a long time before the Truman Show. Back in the 1980s, there was a revamp of the Twilight Zone series, and there was an uh, episode about a guy, what was it called? Special Service. And he's just kind of going about his life. And then and then he finds a camera in his bathroom mirror and oh, starts yes. realizing that he there's cameras everywhere. And he actually is the star of a show. And then there are two really great books by two of the granddads of modern science fiction, um, Robert Heinlein and Philip K. Dick, that both explored that phenomenon. Now, since Abby brought it up. There's another part of this that is disturbing to me. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll see a Dr. Phil clip and he'll say something that I think is pretty great. But for the most part, I just kind of roll my eyes and grit my jaw. And there was a recent one that was kind of put up on Facebook as as a blurb about a young woman who the family didn't know what to do with her because she did not finish school, didn't get a job. They're supporting her and she is wants to be an influencer and then the minute you meet this person who is a moderately attractive young woman wearing a lot of makeup and I, i'm i'm giving you specifics because they're important to this is that her makeup was verging on clown like it wasn't like mm. a beautiful sort of instagram model contouring job it's like almost clown like yeah. and she is on all the time, you know, she's on her page and she really came across to me as someone who was delusional. Like mm-hmm. she really thought she was a star. And they're all kind of taking it a little lightly, like, oh, you know, you really have high thoughts of yourself. And I'm going, No, I've worked with people like this. She's on the verge of she pure really psychosis. Yeah. yeah. And she had affect stuff that can happen with people who have schizophrenia or prodromal syndrome. Okay. So I was like, oh God. Jeez. I wish they handled that better. Ex-
1: yeah, exploitative episode of Dr. Phil.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just put another hatch mark on his show. There you go.
1: Right. Yeah. I Abby, I would just love to know, like in what sort of arenas you've heard of this, or it would be interesting to look at how prominent it is, or if it's even problematic. You know, I again, yeah. I think if generations are spending more time time online and having a camera in front of your face feels like you're the star of your own show you kind of are i just i don't know
0: that's a good point
1: so there's there's like is it delusional or is it just this is what it is these days so i don't know keep an eye on it very interesting
0: okay jessica a has another question so You covered parental alienation syndrome, but what about legit reasons from being estranged from your parents? This has been a topic I have have seen on social media, and people ask when it's okay to cut ties with family. Blood is supposed to be thicker than water, but some family relationships are untenable. Hmm.
1: Yes. So there's not like a direct question here or research base. It's just kind of what about legit reasons. Yeah. And absolutely. It's there kind are... of a
0: therapy question. <laughs> yeah, right?
1: it, it kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica, we hope you're doing great. But yes, I mean, there there are absolutely re- legit reasons. Cutting ties with family can be incredibly, incredibly difficult, but also incredibly necessary to remain healthy for yourself. And I thought, Scott, what what advice? Would, let's turn this into a question. What What advice would you give on how to sort of cut ties appropriately?
0: You know, I don't even know if I'm going to... Go to a play. I'm not going to spend so much time on cutting ties appropriately. I kind of want to do the the foundational pre work. Okay. About whether I mean there seems to be in this question of like whether it's okay. When is mm-hmm. it okay to cut ties with family? So everyone has to have their own subjective experience of what is acceptable versus not acceptable in their family. So. Uh, look, I'm already anticipating that my my next soapbox rant is going to generate a lot of controversy. <laughs> but please understand that I am responding as a clinician with a lot of training in family systems. However, my bias, and I do have a bias, is very much oriented in my Scotch Irish upbringing, which includes conflict avoidance and mm-hmm. also just Irish goodbye, which is ghosting, which is you know you just cut people out when they're toxic. So. On one hand, you're know you allowed to cut people out when they're toxic and dangerous to your life. However, if you just lop people off over and over again without any thought about where you sit in this, Mm -hmm. then you're not taking the opportunity to become a better version of yourself, which we should all be doing. So here's what I want to give you, any of our listeners, which I'm going to sound facetious when I say this, but literally you can save yourself thousands of dollars in therapy if you can get these basic things and I'm going to use some raw language. First of all, like we have to understand that the family is a system and even like some family systems therapists call it a psychocybernetic organism. And okay. if you think of a family as gears within a machine and one of those gears can be completely broken and cracked and wearing down on all of the other pieces, but the machine is supposed to function, so it will continue grinding through. And then when that piece wears out or breaks, it will then learn to function in a different way, putting generally more pressure that went to the that broken gear onto someone else. So that leads to the idea of some people in families may be different thinkers, or they may have a different emotional processes, or they may be wired slightly differently, and they can easily become the identified patient or the scapegoat for the family's anger, which is not fair to that person. Becoming Mm -hmm. the identified patient means that you're now a lightning rod for everything that goes wrong in the family. And that's not good parenting. That's not good responsibility, but some people just don't know better. And, you know, there are some really great books that I can tell you that would be great to start with. One of them is Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, How to Heal from Distant Rejecting and Self-Involved Parents. Even if those labels don't apply to your specific situation, this is a great book. It is a great framework for understanding how to sit in your discomfort while learning how to have boundaries and manage your expectations. And when you learn to do it in family, it becomes a superpower in the rest of your life. I promise you the runner up on suggestions for books include codependent. No more. Another one called rejected, shamed and blamed help and hope for adults in the family scapegoat role. And the last one, but it's your family cutting ties Mm -hmm. with toxic family members and loving yourself in the aftermath. So I put an, yeah, it is. I put an asterisk against Codependent No More. Codependent No More has been around for decades and it's constantly updated. It's a great book. However, you know, not all aspects of codependency are bad depending on what culture you come from. So I think there's a little bit of a Western society bias to that. So be careful when you're reading it. But here's where I yank out my soapbox. First of all, own your shit. So if you're having problem in toxic relationships, it is time to own your own shit before you take out a magnifying glass and look at anybody else's. Take a real in-depth personal inventory that can be totally informed by whatever your history is. Yes, it may be true that an individual was hurt or traumatized by experiences or that experience. But at some point, we as individuals have to take accountability and assess our responsibilities, if possible. And again, even this step is informed by my privilege. I'm talking about me, Dr. Scott. I have privilege as a person who has access to resources for self-care. And I'm talking about even a self-help book in a library is seen as a privilege if you're a working single parent with no time to address these kind of issues. You don't even have time to get to the library. You don't have fucking time to read it, right? But owning your own stuff and what can be understood as this, like in this situation of blank, I do not handle things well. Or here's another situation, or another way to frame it is, well, I know I get triggered by blank when blank happens. Just intellectualizing it and putting mm-hmm. it down so you're understanding and naming things that scare us about ourselves is possible. And when you own your shit, it benefits you almost immediately. And it benefits your potential support system because you will lower the risk of projecting your shit on somebody else or throwing it back Like the monkey that threw it at you.
1: So So sort of step one, look inward, even if there is legit external shit being thrown your way, look inward, look at your piece of it. Also, if you're the person that's always wanting to cut people off everywhere... That might be problematic.
0: That's a problem because <laughs> what's the common factor there? You. And look, yeah. and the common factor yeah. could be that your radar is broken and you keep getting into toxic relationships with the That's wrong people because it. maybe you're a people pleaser or maybe you're, you know, you always want to fix the bird with the broken wing. But again, you have to have awareness of like, maybe I'm picking the wrong people to be around. Yeah.
1: Okay. So once you identify and own your shit, then what?
0: This is controversial. I say, forgive your shit. So as long as you're owning your shit, you're also allowed to forgive your shit as long as it. Doesn't Doesn't become an excuse to be an asshole or to be a victim. So step 95 way, way down the line (laughs) is to forgive them their shit for they know not what they do, even if they think they do. Mm. but that's a really advanced step and you don't have to do it. So like, I'm not going to tell somebody who was had this shit beaten out of them by their parents or were neglected or emotionally abused. I'm not going to tell them like right now you have to forgive them. But yeah. in the big picture, understanding that people are products of their environment and that they pass on toxicity. I mean, really in a, like if I was a Bible thumper, I'd be saying like, this is the sins of the fathers. This is what mm. it is. This is how intergenerational transmission of trauma goes down the family yep. line. So sure. step number two <laughs> is Forgive your shit. Give yourself a little wiggle room. Okay, I'm not handling this well. I come from a situation that has not taught me how to do it. That's okay. I'm not a bad person for being challenged in this moment because guilt and shame only make everything worse, which is why a couple of those books I listed are really good. Step three, work your shit. Work Work on it every single day in every moment that's available to you. Do journaling, accountability exercises, mindfulness, meditation, meditation, With each of these actions focused on real-world application, it may mean saying no more often so that you don't find yourself in the middle of situations that become toxic, but the dirty trick is that you've been raised in toxicity, you're exposed to it pervasively, you're likely to have an unhealthy defense response, particular to family situation, and then that gets generalized to your experience in the world around you. So what I'm just saying, this is all building up. It seems like I've gotten away from Abby's question, but I'm really not. It's that you are strengthening yourself and putting a Teflon energy bubble around you so that when you are getting, when you're getting virtual emotional shit thrown at you, it just slides off, right?
1: Yeah. And this is Jessica's question, by the way.
0: Jessica, sorry. Thank you, Jessica. That's okay. Step four move your shit. Move
1: it. (laughs) Work it and move it.
0: (laughs) I know. Find a way to live a life that makes no room for your shit. Work towards a fulfilling, insightful life that allows you to feel comfort, to feel challenged, and joy that is expansive, leaving little to no room for the shit. And if you can't physically extricate yourself from the family or the toxic people, then you have to default to learning about being non-reactive. And one of the most wonderful techniques for working with people who are personality disordered and really coming after you is to use the gray rock technique. And if you just Google gray rock technique, it'll teach you all about it. It'll teach you how to be the most boring person in the world so that you're not pouring gasoline on the fire that's already burning.
1: Yeah, and we talked about that in our live stream last weekend when we were talking about high-conflict divorce. And if gray rock technique, just, I'm just, just want to add a little piece on there is really to protect yourself, hopefully until you can get out of a relationship. If, if it's like a romantic relationship that you're stuck in with somebody who's really toxic. So it's to protect you, protect you, protect you. You want to make sure you're not stonewalling people that you're working on a relationship with or that you're going to continue to see forever. Cause that can be weaponized.
0: Really? Yes. Very good distinction.
1: But if you need a technique to sort of keep you protected in the time being, works well there. And then like you're talking about with family that you're deciding, am I going to cut ties with them? Am I not? Am I going to have to tolerate them? Maybe holidays or on occasion, gray Rock technique
0: is great for that too. Yeah. So the last tip I came up with was find your tribe, you know, despite what You know, the cliche say about what family is, family is made up of the people that accept you, see you for who you are, love you in spite of your warts, you know, or whatever your, your family is who you make it. And look, like they say, blood is thicker than water, but so is cholesterol and that shit will kill you. You know,
1: oh, you said shit a lot. I
0: said, a, <laughs> I did a shit ton of shit this this episode. Yes,
1: you did.
0: <laughs> but there's I like, all the like, are those your,
1: spots, five steps. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, it's like a good it. start. And I, I think that it is, this is basically kind of, it's one of the things that brings people to therapy mm-hmm. is learning to break the habits and the ingrained, traits of what we grew up with that just don't work for us anymore so well yeah
1: and i getting that professional help could be so supportive in this because like you said we're encouraging people to do things that they were not taught to do or that that wasn't modeled for them so it's it's like this catch-22 you need some guidance and support and all of that yeah all right, next question from Patreon member Amelia T. Don't you have a grandnie's name, Amelia? <laughs> I love that name so much. What's the difference between a PhD and a PsyD and their potentials in the forensic world? So funny that you ask this because I was inspired to do a little TikTok series just on this this week. You may have seen that. I put a couple of parts up on our Instagram, but I'll describe the differences and then we'll talk about this a little bit of, potentials and and really what the overlap is because there's a lot of overlap. But the PsyD degree, which is what Scott and I have, focuses more on hands-on clinical training. Along with research where the PhD definitely focuses more on research and probably, you know, grooming that doctoral candidate for academia. And end of the day, (laughs) those are really, really kind of the big differences. So while both prepare you for promising careers in psychology, a PsyD degree positions you well for in the field careers such as a clinical psychologist. And that's only PsyDs have only been around since like the 70s. And I should probably explain that a PsyD is a doctorate in psychology, hence the PSY. So a PhD is a doctorate in philosophy. And you know that people can get PhDs in everything under the sun, astrophysics, neuropsych, what have you. There's a lot of different kinds of doctorates out there, including JDs, EDDs. But in brief terms, people with a PsyD, a doctor of psychology degree, generally use their psychological training to work with people seeking therapy. So working with patients and clients. And then people who hold PhDs are going to be teaching, conducting research studies, maybe consult professionally in mental health fields. But I could tell you there's a lot of overlap. If, if you just think, okay, CITES didn't even exist until the 70s. People with PhDs were doing all of this stuff. It's just gotten a little bit more specialized. So I think people can pick the graduate school program that fit best for what they envision that they're going to be doing. But yeah, let's let's talk about jobs with those degrees. How do you want to break this down?
0: Well, I just want to go back a, a little bit in that what you talked about was the classic divide. Because yeah. there weren't enough psychologists in the in the United States. So they developed a doctorate degree that would focus more on clinical work. So that became the PsyD, the doctorate mm-hmm. in psychology versus philosophy, which would be more geared towards research. And I would say that like, if you are someone that doesn't want to do any clinical work and you just want to do research, then you absolutely would not get a PsyD. Because I right. don't know of any PsyD programs that are focused primarily on research because PsyD programs generally follow what they call a scholar practitioner model. So you were learning all the research, you were learning how to research, but you're also applying it. So in order to call yourself a psychologist in the state of California, as well as really the vast majority of the U.S. and the world, you have to have a doctorate degree in psychology and you have to license. So the process of licensing is the same test for everyone. So even if you never plan to do clinical work of any kind, you still have to have enough training and education to get through several of the domains on the test to be able to pass. So, I mean, there could be some people out there who have a doctorate in psychology, a PhD, doctor of philosophy, focusing on psychology and doing research. But most people are, they can't really call themselves a psychologist in the state of California because you have to be licensed. They're not licensed. Right. Yeah, right. right, like there is a really great school here in Southern California called Pacifica that offers a PhD in clinical psych. However, their program is very much focused on clinical work. It is not like those people are not going to go do research because it is a Mm -hmm. union Mm -hmm. program for the most part. And then, you know, then on the other hand, I do know CITI programs that definitely focus on research, but it's not like you would choose to go to a CID program if you know that all you want to do is research. Anyway, both degrees require a lot of work, multiple years. And the thing that's frustrating is that, you know, it's been since the 70s that our degree was created and we still get like a little bit of a fish eye from the community in that it's like a lesser degree. And when I was in my first private practice supervisor as an MFT, when I entered a doctoral program... And was telling him about it, about like what a great program it was. and It was workable, like I could still work full time. And he actually said, oh, no, 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 I want to go to a, a real, a real doctoral program. Mm-hmm. And I remember like kind of cocking my head and staring. I'm like, did he just say that? Like, I mean, it was funny. I mean, I I also realized what a complete dumbass he was. And I was out of there and, and only a <laughs> few months later. But wow, what a dumb thing to say.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, next question. (laughs) This is the one that starts as a question for me and then a question, a different question for you that is very different. Okay. That you were laughing about earlier. Yeah. So, this is from Hal Shore says, I have a question for each of you. Uh, I'm actually going to read both <laughs> just because it's funny, and then we'll break it down. Okay. First, Dr. Shiloh, when you were working with incarcerated sex offenders, did you ever feel threatened? And also, were there clients that you refused to work with? Dr. Scott, I'm originally from Chicago. I want to know what was your favorite pizza when you lived there? I know. <laughs> Name this of is, pizzeria, this is crust. I know. This is <laughs> no who I answers. am to our
0: audience. This is who I am to our audience. <laughs> Is first of all, I'm like shocked that that I get the food question, and then I'm like, but of course, because as of for course anybody it. that's ever lived in Chicago, that's an incredibly important thing.
1: At least it wasn't a question about skincare. I was fully expecting one of those. That's true. Skincare,
0: donuts, and pizza, and I'm I can talk for hours. The <laughs> Scott trifecta.
1: <laughs> okay, so going back to asking about ever feeling threatened or refusing to work with clients. No, I never genuinely felt threatened. Unsafe. My threshold is probably a little different than a yeah. lot of people. Although, in hindsight, maybe I should have. I'll share with you that I learned after the fact that a client that I threw out of group one night then went on to murder a woman within the next 24 hours. And when all this came to light much later, my colleagues were very convinced that she looked a lot like me. I will leave that up for total conjecture from anyone, but they were very weirded out. I'm sure I was in a huge place of denial and defense where I was like, what are you talking about? But in instances where things got a little hairy. And and I mean that I was kind of seeing some cues of potential for violence. I always listened to my gut and intervened super, super early. So when I got a whiff of that potential danger, which probably stems from my police work for sure, I, I took action. So like this this incident I'm, I'm talking about, there was verbal altercation between a couple of people and done. Like I drew the line, this person was tossed out of the clinic, doors were locked, probation officers were called, you know, just, I wasn't having any of it. I, and I, am- would, I,
0: I just want to say that that's really important for you to give as a distinction mm-hmm. so that people understand you didn't just arbitrarily decide you didn't want to work with somebody. So you threw them out of group. You made an right. informed decision regarding safety of not only yourself, but other staff and other group members and the cohesion that had been developed within the group, which is incredibly important for recovery and safety maintenance, right? Oh, absolutely. Sometimes as clinicians, we do have to do those things where you go, nope, you're out. Get out of here right now.
1: Yeah, it is forensic work. A population such as parolees, people who have been in and out of state prison their whole life, is just such an odd thing as a clinician because you are... Wanting to be the safe, stable, probably one person who's ever given a shit on a lot of occasions with them, but you also have to hold firm when it comes to guidelines and rules and going with the flow because there's no wiggle room there. You can't have that. So it's it's a really tough position to be in and it's not for everyone. I have stepped in front of stupidly, probably stepped in between two people who are about to go to blows outside of a clinic before and shooed one of them away that ended fine. I had another instance where I was sort of told someone in a group to shut down whatever it was that they were doing or they were i was going to ask them to leave and they just stared daggers at me for the entire session i allowed them to stay but it it was like i could feel it it was a very long 90 minutes yeah and then at the end it was thick in that room but like you said the cohesion of the group people got up to leave two guys stayed behind because they wanted to make sure I was going to be okay. And I just went up to that person and just in the most empathetic way said, what is going on with you today? And he just broke down and told me he had a fight with his girlfriend. And so he, he had other stuff going on and I just kind of pushed his button in the wrong way and it was fine. But, but yeah, I, I would say Never, never really got to that point where I felt unsafe, for sure. So, But there was a couple of clients that I had some strong counter-transference with that I really considered transferring to another therapist. But with really good supervision, I was able to work that out and continue the work with them. It was a bit more difficult to stomach, I'll say that, and stay focused. Yeah. But was able to really work on my own shit with that. And the the one that was very triggering to me was a former law enforcement officer who had been convicted of a sex offense and did not own any of it, was completely in denial and manipulative. And it drove me insane. So yeah. do you, would you would you care to answer this question too, Scott? Because since you've worked with offenders well, so much as well. Well, you know, well.
0: I, I completely forgot about it until you gave that group example. But I when I was running an insight skills group at state prison and this group of guys was a lot of old timers and which is a real benefit because there's a lot of lifers in the room and they will check the younger members by going, you know, you got nothing to complain about, (laughs) you know, they, they do a lot of the work amongst themselves that, that I wouldn't have to do. And we had a new member to the group, a young man who had just been sentenced and he, it was a, it was a brutal crime And he was the cockiest little, just, he was an asshole. And I mean, not only an asshole, he was a a criminal, minimized his crime, but also just liked to stir things up. And he was not letting the group be facilitated. And I finally threw him out. I mean, I realized you got to go, you got to go like, it's time to go. I'm I'm going to push the button if you don't go. And he goes out and like kicks a table and slams a door. And I did not get support from the group at all. They were like, that's not what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to listen to him talk. And I I had to take it in. And I was like, well, we don't have what he was talking about was not what was going on in the group. He was trying to take time from you. My job is to keep this ship on the route that it's going. And the group didn't agree with me. They absolutely oh, did not agree with me. We still continued the group. You know, we kind of recalibrated within the next session or so. But mm-hmm. I was surprised by that. The other thing mm-hmm. was an example of a guy that was incredibly seductive. And it's funny, like here I was like this past middle age guy. And he. what was funny to me was he thought that I was going to fall for him thinking that he was attracted to me. When like, oh, dude, I've read you know, your, I've read your criminal file. I know what you're about and what you've yeah. done. This, this is not anywhere. In I know the,
1: you're not seeking any of this. Yeah, you're
0: not, you're not after this. Like, you know, pasty middle aged body dressed in clothes from Target. <laughs> grad
1: so, school, right? Like, Post grad school wardrobe. Haggard,
0: just haggard, like you know, forty pounds overweight. <laughs> but it was interesting because. It wasn't really working, and I felt him sort of amping up and poking and prodding in different areas, trying to find an end to me. And at one point, I suddenly felt the same feeling that I had felt when I came like face-to-face with a rattlesnake on a hiking trail years ago.
1: Good analogy. And
0: I just went, I mean, everything kind of flipped on in my spine. I was like, I can't, this is not, I can't um, continue this because I'm not, I'm not able to contain this person. I can't keep him on track. So I talked to my supervisor who was great. And she said, let's, let's transfer him out. And then before I could transfer him to another clinician, he was already gone from the yard for something else. But Uh. yeah, you know, you live and learn like there, I think um, the danger is when therapists especially forensic specialists get too comfortable and think that they know everything and that they think their radar is top-notch, it's like, no, your radar is clunky. That's yep. why you have to listen to it really close and figure it out.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: But now um, the real important question.
1: Pizza. Pizza. Back to
0: pizza. Oh my God, you guys. <laughs> so it's <laughs> like, first of all, let me frame this. I was right out of college when I lived in Chicago. And I came from a time and a period in the South where the The fanciest and most tasty food was really like barbecue, and I didn't have a mom who was a fancy cook. She did some great things, but like I had never had pasta other than macaroni and spaghetti. Didn't know there was such a thing. Didn't know right. what real Chinese food was. I was like I just didn't. had not been exposed to it.
1: Did your mom cook you that chow mein that came in a can?
0: My sister <laughs> Anne did. Oh my god! My mom's Chun King sweet and sour pork, and it was delicious. It was so gross and delicious. And I
1: say cook like in air quotes. You just dump it out of a can, and then it has like the other can on the bottom that has like those
0: the noodles, the the crunchy yeah um, the lo mein noodles yeah Yeah, the crunchy noodles (laughs) yeah it was on top of white rice yeah just not not great yep. (laughs) But uh, yeah, if you're in Chicago, the ultimate pizza for me was in Evanston and at the Loyola L stop, a place called Carmen's. And it was unbelievable. So I'm just wondering, was it really that good or is because it was like new to me? Mm. Carmen's was so good. And there was like this really great salad that came with it before, you know, that came with your pizza and the croutons. I I don't know what they did. They were the most, I, I, I dream about those croutons. They were giant chunks of, you know, day-old bread that were, like, fried in butter. Yeah, so Carmen's, and then there was Bacino's, which is really good, and for a chain, there was a place called Giordano's was, was good. But I'm way past eating deep dish pizza. Like, I love, I mean, I lo- pizza is my go-to. I love it, I love it, I yeah. love it. But it's like, to me, deep dish is hey, here's a pan with a stack of dough four inches high and we're going to fry it in its own grease (laughs) and then we're going to smother it in cheese and bake it and you're going to eat it, you fat fuck.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> yes it up. is
0: delicious but it's like I would rather have thin crust or New York style that has like all that flavor and that balance rather than just yeah. like a lot of dough right. but when I, I was young I, you know I went to Chicago when I was a professional dancer and I was literally moving 10 to 12 hours a day and I could eat you know I could just oh, eat sure. carbs non-stop and I couldn't keep the weight on you know it was great
1: yeah I did not <laughs> love Chicago style pizza when I tried it when I was in Chicago however I have to say if you're ever in LA there's an amazing place called Masa of Echo Park, and it's incredible Chicago-style
0: pizza. Well, what, is that? what does that mean, though? Is that deep dish?
1: It's deep dish. It has that cornmeal sort of uh, dough. Oh,
0: that crunch. Um, yeah.
1: yeah, the crunch. And then their specialty is mushroom and Italian sausage. And the Italian sausage is like a pounded, thin disc that is just put on top of the pizza, and then that's divvied up in the pie slices. Oh, my God. I'm so true. it's not like... Little sausage pieces. It's so good. Best place to go before Dodger game. Highly recommend. Yummy.
0: There was a restaurant that was here in LA that closed during COVID. It was up on sunset and there was the no guilt pizza or something, but it was the thinnest, crunchiest crust. I mean, the crust was like, like a piece of paper. It was so thin. Oh my gosh. But just it thick enough to hold the toppings. And it was, uh-huh. oh my God, it was so good. Really? Yeah. Now mm-hmm. I just make my own with the, with the Trader Joe's cauliflower crust. They're pretty good. Yeah. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about anchor.
1: First off it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use.
0: Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
1: And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership.
0: It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us.
1: Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. All right, Nick Amel from the Tennis Podcast. Tennis. He asked, what has been the most difficult topic for you personally to cover on the show so mm. far? That's a very good question. It too. is a great
0: question, yeah.
1: I actually had to reflect on this. Definitely the serial poopers episode. <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs>
0: since we're on a a, a shit theme
1: yeah shit theme lots of food (laughs) themed seriously though i think that it was our columbine episode we did Mm. at the 20 year anniversary however all of the feelings for me really didn't come up until after so we did the show which was it it was it was a tough one yeah and then i think we did a follow-up talking about resilience in people who have experienced trauma. And then later, what I hear is a really great podcast by Wondery came out called Confronting Columbine. And I tried listening to it. I was so triggered by it that I think I only got through one episode. And I remember texting you about this. And I, I realized that what it was doing was bringing up some of my past trauma from police work. And I remember texting you and saying like this whole thread of gun violence just super triggered me. And you're like, don't listen to the rest. (laughs) And in my head, I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. And then I thought I should really listen to Scott because he knows what he's talking about. But it was really after that, that I started being comfortable with kind of thinking of myself as a victim of gun violence, even though it was in the course of my job.
0: Oh, shit. That's
1: just not something we say. That's like not something we label ourselves as.
0: What an interesting transition for you to be able. To be to give yourself permission to own I'd, your shit. I mean, that's I'd really never, about, that's what I'm talking about. You're gonna I'd own. i never,
1: that. yeah, I'd never had said those words. I'd never wow. ever had thought of myself that way. But I was owning my shit because I was like, why am I so triggered by this? Yeah, you know, not just I've heard the story. I've I've researched and gone to a million trainings on school shootings, but really hearing those victims talk about it. But I, I think it. I've really come to embrace it and. And I think it informs my work with officers now who have been involved in critical incidents, who have been shot at or who have been shot to be able to say, yeah, even though it was on the job and you're doing what we all know is a potential, you were still a victim of gun violence. Being on the other end, being shot at, there's there's nothing like it. And so, yeah, I think most difficult, but also kind of see this post-traumatic growth that came with it. But yeah, I, I think I think that would be it. There was nothing else, you know, we've talked about sort of like child abuse stuff is really, really hard and we stay away from that, the severe stuff. But yeah, this just hit different.
0: Yeah, I'm thank you for sharing that, Shiloh. I that's a fascinating and very intimate thing to share about your realization in that way. I of course it didn't hit me the same way. And but and I didn't remember telling you not to listen to it. I'm glad I did. And Wondery did a fantastic job on it. It was great, but it was it was tough. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. really tough.
1: So, Scott, what's been the most difficult topic for you to cover on the show?
0: I think it's a hard question because like you were talking about with Columbine, the things come afterwards sure. sometimes. So there are two that came up for me. One was Anthony Soul mm-hmm. and the House of Horrors. I mean, House of Horrors is like a real catchy name yeah. for that particular crime. The
1: Cleveland Strangler. What's that? The Cleveland Strangler.
0: Right, right. To me, like I was saying, it took a really long time for it to sink in. And then, you know, once you just really sit with it, which I think we've talked about more mm-hmm. since we recorded that episode, is that these were women of color. The victims were women of color that were so forgotten by their community that their deaths were overlooked and evidence and facts were overlooked. They were um, overlooked. They w- when
1: they were running to a police car, bloody and naked, they were overlooked. <laughs> exactly. When they're crawling out of two-story windows. Ugh. And
0: crawling. Yeah, it, it, they were ignored. The evidence was ignored, misunderstood, poorly evaluated. And then if there had been anyone that had broken through that chain, maybe it would have saved some lives and nobody did. And that it really is an example of systemic racism having incredible impact on a particularly marginalized group of people. Right.
1: Because not only, you know, them being sex workers, them being drug addicted, not only did that have them overlooked, but, you know, a lot of them were quote unquote uncooperative witnesses, but it's because of a system developed to not help them feel safe or believed or any of the right. bullshit that they've had to deal with their yeah. entire lives. That of course they you know just kind of move on and know that this isn't going to go anywhere. So yeah, incredibly disturbing.
0: And of course for me, the runner up to Soul is Cindy James when we did a crossover with Women in Crime, yes. the doctors over there. And I was not expecting to be that particularly interested, but the more I listened to their really great reporting on this particular bizarre death, Mm -hmm. so much stuff came up for me that I had to call myself on my things about not being pulled into snap judgments about individuals who are likely disordered on the personality spectrum or personality domain. I find it fascinating and sad that it just is one of these things that's unsolved. And I wish there was more attention paid to it. But it's just what a tragic, sad death and a a very sad, lonely life. I think because we don't because we don't have enough information right but it's just one and i just think it's representative it's it's the the accusations and the statements made by Cindy were bizarre but what we would call non-bizarre i mean really they were things that actually could be happening she could have been telling the truth totally or she could have been attention seeking so mm-hmm. we'll never know or maybe maybe at some point we'll have more evidence
1: maybe All right. Next question. You want to read it from our friend, Crispy?
0: From our dear friend, Crispy. I was wondering when our two favorite forensic psychologists plan to retire, hopefully not anytime soon, and how they plan on spending their golden years. Uh, That's a great question, actually.
1: Chris. Are you calling us old? Because I'm taking offense to this <laughs> being You are asked. not. I don't know. I don't like the words golden years. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with this one. I, I don't know. It's, it's something that I think is just starting to maybe enter my uh, brain, my realm. My husband is potentially just about two years away from retirement if he wants. He is older than me, but as As a married couple and as a family, it's something that we're starting to look at, like what would come next? What do we want to do? Where do we want to be? That sort of thing. I could do this job for a very long time. And I think therapy offers that to us. But I don't know if I can keep up this pace with the type of job that I have now, which I absolutely love. But getting my ass out of bed at 3 in the morning to go drive to BFE, also known as the Valley, (laughs) you know, to go to a SWAT call is fun now, but I know when you were doing this kind of work, Scott, and you were like, I am too old to be on call. Fuck this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, but you also had the benefit of being on, you know, your police work sort of gave you an understanding of it for me. And my my emotional makeup and being sort of a an, a hyper type of guy, like I never slept in the weeks mm. I was on. Oh, because you were like hyper sleep. vigilant about. I was hyper vigilant, ringing. and and also the agency I was working for when I was a law enforcement psych had the shittiest cell phones. I mean, like literally, <sighs> they gave us flip That's phones awful. that had bad reception. So it's like you don't know if it's going to go. Oh, it was just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. So really I, ridiculous.
1: I don't know. I mean, I I just came into where I'm working now. A, about five years ago. So there's a lot to balance. I can do it for a very long time, but I just came into that pension system, even though I had others going not that long ago. So I, again, I'm like, I'm not even doing calculations for myself at this point. We'll see.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm, I got a decade on you and look, I'm really lucky. I love my day job so much. It is you know, not to say it's like walking into heaven every morning, but it is so interesting. And I feel like I'm making an impact and I continue to learn from it. I also love my private practice with people who really want their lives to be better and are willing to do the work. And you just feel like you're doing this incredible collaboration on something that really matters. Mm -hmm. So I love that. But like yourself, I I cannot keep up the pace that I, I used to. I don't know no, I, I'm going to theorize that if COVID had not impacted all of us, I still would be able to move at the same pace I did three and a half years ago. I really think I could. What do you think? Changed? But co- I think COVID just wore us all down in an emotional way that nobody really understands, and we're not going to understand it for another decade. I think in the, another decade we're going to see the real impact on yeah. it. That's I, I really do think that. But you know, I'll probably work to the standard and recommended age because I want to have a, a a good pension as well. But I will. And I want to, you know, like when I retire, I want to work on passion projects. I still want to research. I still want to write. I want to do everything. And look, if I, if a giant, and I mean a big bag of money (laughs) fell out of the sky, (laughs) you know, I would actually like to have time for hobbies, which I don't really have a lot of time for hobbies. And that, that's the one aspect of my life that's really out of balance, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, because your my hobby should not be marathoning Netflix, you know, or something it just shouldn't.
1: Well, and to be honest, this has turned into more than a hobby you know, this is a commitment. This is a responsibility. So I I totally get what you're saying. And actually on this note, Chris, I will have you know that I am closing my private practice in April. I have put that hard deadline for myself. So I am terminating with my last few clients right now, which feels good. It feels good to uh, have something off my plate. And it was very small and they were, you know, in a maintenance phase anyway in as far as how often they were doing therapy and telehealth just made that so much easier, but I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to, to give it up. So that's coming to a close. Okay. Melissa G. Hi, Melissa. She asks what syndrome diagnosis or psychological subject is your favorite to research and that you can't get enough of? And why? So I kind of alluded to this for me with one of my with one of the other questions, but for most of my career, it has been paraphilic disorder and paraphilias and those behaviors. To me, again, it's the trifecta of just the fascination, sweet spot for me. Human behavior, criminal behavior, and then sexual behavior. It's it's just endlessly interesting. I think Freud and I would have been really good friends. We would have had a lot of conversations about sex as a motivator. <laughs> not an explanation for everything, but I still love that stuff. I think more recently, and of course, this comes from not working directly with the criminal population anymore, It's been leaning towards less criminal and just focusing on problematic sexual behaviors that are impacting people's lives because of compulsiveness, the stigma, you know, perhaps them not being comfortable with embracing their preferences or their kinks or whatever, the impact it's having on their relationships. There's Really nothing like someone opening up to you for the first time that they've talked about something that they felt so much shame about. And then you normalize that sexual interest for somebody and just seeing the relief on their face when they can finally talk about it. So that, that has been an area that I'm, I am constantly, I've been doing a lot of training lately, reading some books, really kind of finding the leading people in this field that I want to know more from and just soak up everything in their brains. So yeah, I think that's what it is for me right now.
0: That's fascinating for me. Well, I want to comment on something you just said. (laughs) I can't even remember how many times I have said in response to a client opening up about Something that they are concerned about with their sexuality or feel shamed for, and I go you know they they are say you know this is this is wrong, and I go says who
1: yeah, yeah,
0: says who the, you're you're this is a natural exploration of your sexuality, you know, explain to them no harm is coming to anyone. You know, this is, this is the mind is the biggest sexual organ that exists and Mm -hmm. we have to respect it and understand it. And so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that there are clinicians like you that are out there with the goal of taking that understanding even further. I think that's great. Now for me, I'm more fascinated by what were commonly, but formally called access to personality disorders. And most people are sort of familiar with like disocial personality disorder, borderline narcissistic, histrionic. And, you know, now we tend to look at them more in a holographic or a three-dimensional paradigm rather than a linear spectrum. And I just find them fascinating. You know, working in private practice with those that have BPD, NPD, or ASPD, you see the struggle between what a person knows to be objective reality on an other than conscious level that is in direct conflict with how they interact with the world. So not that I'm saying that my entire practice is made up of individuals, this, but like even uh, traits or, or, or flavors in behavior that can be destructive in relationship. I'm fascinated by that. And I always go back to the idea that Viktor Frankl, who was an amazing, amazing researcher and therapist with a particularly, you know, harsh background has This wonderful set of ways he looks at it that I think are in line with what Linehan says. and He has three quotes that I've always loved I want to share. And he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I love that because it's just a very simple way of telling people that, yes, I know you have a storm inside you mm-hmm. right now. And that storm makes you want wants you to strike out with lightning and thunder at who, who your perceived enemy is, but you have a choice. And when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves, yes. which goes back to what I was saying earlier about own your shit oh my
1: gosh yeah that that should be a foundational motto of therapy altogether right
0: and really the ultimate freedom is described by him he says the last of human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances as someone who has been at the affect of my emotional storms given you know a traumatic experience or what i perceive to be a traumatic experience the idea that there is a choice there actually is quite empowering and and that's what I try and 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 impart to people in a way that that they can hear in the process of therapy, and not everybody hears the same things in the same way. So it can it has to be tailored to each individual. But
1: well, and also endlessly fascinating because I feel like there's been so many strides made in this area of access to stuff lately where we're starting to consider biological bases that weren't really considered before. And, and thus I lean on you to keep up on that research and keep us informed (laughs) in our duo here. Cause I do, I, I know that I default to you a lot when we These themes come up over and over again, but I also know you are really keeping up on the cusp of what's happening in research.
0: So I try to, I mean, the, you know, the, the personality disorders things has made some huge strides in the last few years, like you were saying, understanding that there is a particular phenomenon that occurs when there is a organicity or a predisposition towards something that is marked by your physiology and your genetics in tandem with trauma and that is great that we have that understanding. And yet there is still choice. Yep. There is always still choice. So
1: okay, we're gonna move on from the Patreon questions and from Instagram. We have a question from at Ford in your future. And she or he, not sure who, they ask, How did each of you meet your spouses? Or they yeah, well, they ask, <laughs> How did each of you meet your spouses? Don't think that that's been touched on yet. I don't think it has either.
0: Uh, I I thought we had. Had I think we've mentioned it. Okay.
1: I met my husband at an event called Baker to Vegas, which is a law enforcement relay race. You race in teams from Baker, California to Las Vegas. And my department was participating in the race. His department was participating in the race. And I saw this beautiful man out by the pool one day slow motion, getting out of the, the water, water droplets, just, you know, falling off of him in the sparkling Vegas sunshine. And I said, that would be a nice person to spend my time with this weekend. And we ended up. You know, 18 years later, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas.
0: (laughs) Well, clearly not all women are exclusively non-visual.
1: Oh, right. Stimulators because you were, you were stimulated (laughs) by that slow motion. I still am. Look at the glow on my face
0: right now. (laughs) Maybe you're a gay man in a woman's body. Maybe. What about you? So ours was crazy. This dates us was in an AOL chat room and I think he might've, said, Hey, how you doing? Uh-huh. And I don't even remember. I mean, it's been so long. I don't remember what my screen name was. I don't remember anything, oh, Come on, but you, even, but you couldn't even trade. Ph- I mean, the photos were like, Oh yeah. Know, the loading like slowly coming in, but we were chatting and we both worked out at the local gold gym. And I said, well, I'm there on these days. And I usually have a, I think it was the anaheim angels hat on uh-huh. or something like that usually so <laughs> wait
1: i'm sorry you are a sports cap with a baseball a team cat. on it?
0: yes that was the one with the sticks i, I like it because it was the logo I it was the great don't logo. don't even know you anymore yeah <laughs> who are you but yeah he walked this so this really absolutely handsome man walked up with this big smile on his face Aww. and he's like oh i forgot to tell you i wasn't wearing glasses so i was like looking there's a couple other red hats and i was like really weirded out whether i should go up and talk to him but you're the one from your description. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, it was great. It was interesting. I was coming out of a really, really bad relationship. And I had been in a couple of other relationships that, you know, just sort of didn't pan out. And I went, had gone into therapy, like, hey, I got to figure this out. Like, here's the common factor. it's my shit? Me. What What <laughs> am I doing? And my therapist was really is still is an amazing guy. And he just sort of, he introduced me to this concept that I use a lot in my own work called the horrible familiar. And it's the idea of repeating the same pattern because it's familiar regardless of the fact that it's not helpful. It's not healthy. It's not fun, but it's what, you know, well, I know how to deal with this kind of crazy. And what we we term something between the two of us is like the companion to my horrible familiar was sparkle blinders, (laughs) so I would like have these blinders on to not see the potential in people. Mm -hmm. And with, with my husband, I mean, with with him at the time is like, I, there was, it was not a love connection on the first date. It was like, I don't know if we have anything in common. And then, you know, I kept getting coached by me. There was like, no, you have to go on three dates. You have to go. And then like something clicked on the third date that was just, it was amazing. And yeah. How long have you guys been together now? 27 years.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: I know it's crazy. That is
1: so crazy. I know. I I knew it was over twenty five because I was sort of calculating how yeah. long you guys have been together when you and I met. So wow, yeah,
0: blows my mind. Just blows Look my at mind.
1: Us, okay, Alicia on Instagram. She says I'm a side student and I've been questioning going forensic specialty. However, mm. could you talk to me about how much time forensic psychologists actually have to spend in court? Or how they're used in court, I think that's the one thing that would help me decide. Gosh, this is a really hard question to answer because there's yeah. a lot that goes into yeah, it. Yeah, I'm
0: not. I'm not exactly sure which way she's leaning, so we're kind of gonna do an yeah. over or I'm gonna do an overview. Yeah,
1: I so just from personal experience, working in the different populations, you guys know that I have worked with. I have been in court literally once to testify. Please refer back to the question where one of my clients murdered somebody, but... The potential is always, I almost think the potential is always there for at least notes to be subpoenaed by therapists. And then you might find yourself in court for a custody battle or something. It happens at my current job every once in a while. People get subpoenaed to court. Rarely do they testify though. But I mean, you can have a job as just a forensic psychologist where you're an expert assessor and testifying in court all the time. That can be like literally all you do. So can you give us a little bit more?
0: Well, I'm not sure if the question is like, is she saying, can I... I avoid going to court,
1: (laughs) (laughs) right? Or
0: can I get a job where I am in court all the time? And, you know, and both of those are completely legit Mm -hmm. with, with anything in between. Once again, as I've said before, even within our specialty of forensics, there is a wide range of things that you can do. I, but in agreement, unless you're specifically seeking out a job in forensic psychology that requires you to be in court a lot, and there are a couple of those that it's generally a rare occurrence. So, you know, it's lucrative. I mean, one of the very lucrative independent contractor type jobs is a court evaluator for county jail inmates, at least here in California it is. And it's like, I know people that do it as a side job or they do it as their their main job. And it's very, very lucrative. And you will have more of a chance of being called as a witness in this line of work because either the defense or the DA will go, well, you know, tell me more about what this means that this inmate said in your interview. So that would be a higher chance. But even in the evaluator stance, generally what you're doing is giving a report of bullet points after you do an evaluation and that's provided to the attorneys. But if they want to cross-examine you, they can bring you in. Again, doesn't happen a lot. If you want to do court work, um, doing custody evaluations, which makes me absolutely shudder, yeah. it's very lucrative. It's also very challenging with a lot, as of, as you would have heard on our episode of Get Vocal last week, a lot of high-conflict families. You will develop a spine of steel, and you will be asked to testify a lot. And you will be the recipient of a lot of negative energy from people who just see you as allied with the devil yep. I mean, there, and there's no way to avoid that. But if you, if you are comfortable on doing that, then, then that's a good gig to do. Another one that's lucrative and requires pretty regular appearances in court is sex offender evaluations. They're pretty standard, you know, like there are forensic companies here in California that that's all they do because there's a, we've got a big population. We have a lot of sex offenders in prison and You know, you can make a lot of money, you know, just kind of mowing out these evaluations that are based on a rubric, an evaluation using several tools that are continuing to be refined and developed. But depending on whether they're a sexually violent predator or like the specifics of their case you could very well be called in to testify. And, you know, look, this is not something that is, I'm not going to say it's easy, but like it is a profession. And once you get good at it and you learn the ropes, it's a pretty solid career to have. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying, Shiloh, there's also the route of being a hired gun that's utilized by either prosecution or defense as an expert witness. And that would be brought on the stand to explain and sort of uh, provide a, a visual picture of complex psychological issues and then work your way through potential scenarios but I just want to be very upfront and blunt with this if you were a hired gun it is a completely different challenge from other types of being called on the stand as a material witness when you are a hired gun the opposition side is going to be trying to take you down and that is their job is to take you down and attorneys even if they're not very good attorneys can be incredibly condescending and that's their job is to ruin your credibility. And one of the biggest credit, one of the things they'll first go for is like, you do this for money, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course I do it for money. It's my job. So you have a vested interest in getting paid and you know, that's one of the big tactics that you in
1: this job, not only is your trade craft knowing the world of psychology and diagnoses and things like that, but your trade craft really becomes, how to be an expert witness, how to testify, which is absolutely an art. And some of the things you're talking about, not letting them get under your skin, not letting it get personal, knowing how to appropriately answer questions and not appear as a hostile witness. And there's a lot, You your ethics have to be solid. I mean, we have all watched the shit shows of Documentaries of court trials where the experts just sound like fucking morons because they don't know how yeah. to testify, and it's shot like you're gone. So, but then you you know you can't go too far the other way where you sound like the pompous asshole that's the know it all either. So it really the 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 trade craft becomes being able to testify appropriately and ethically, and um, you better like it. And it's, it's tough. I mean, you're in the hot seat a lot. You get up there, you testify in your job.
0: I'm not up a lot. And I, uh, but I do remember the first time. And the first time I was like on the swivel chair and I was like swiveling while I was talking and
1: flipping around like a little
0: kid, my legs, but like my (laughs) shoulders were moving. Like I was on a, but You know, it is interesting. We were given sort of simulations in grad school by an expert up in Ventura County who was a child custody evaluator. And he would throw things at us like he'd give an example of like, you know, an attorney that comes in to cross examine you as an expert witness and they have like a stack of 70 books. Have you read... (laughs) The essence of psychotherapy by so-and-so, so-and-so. And and your response, they're trying to innerve you, and your response is, I'm not familiar with that one. However, I am familiar with the most recent and accurate research. And that accurate research says this. So basically anything that comes before it, we really just don't really pay attention to that because it's not accurate. Oh my gosh. But you have to be able to parry like that in a non-condescending way, which I even had a little bit of I was say, snark right there as I was doing.
1: I want to see your snark I'm, come out on the stand. I, did,
0: I didn't mean to talk down to you, but it's just your so hard silly not to. <laughs> You and your little books. Are you adorable? Adding them on the head. <laughs> You are just the sweetest little attorney.
1: So this is a hard question to answer, I guess, is what we're saying. It depends. The potential is always there, but there are jobs where you can totally just do that. But yeah, we need more info from you, Alicia, to know how we can answer that. But that, that should give you a good overview. Mary on Instagram says, why do people seem to believe men who make accusations of sexual assault so much more easily than women? For example, accusations against Kevin Spacey. Versus claims against Cosby Mm. and Weinstein, Mm -hmm. one accusation by a male versus dozens of accusations by dozens of women. Great question.
0: Really good. (laughs) Really
1: good, thoughtful question. I have not seen data on this, so I don't know if this is perception skewed by media coverage or if it's really in fact the case. So let's say that it is in fact the case. You and I can throw out some theories here. I think I would venture to guess that it has to do with some flavors of implicit bias towards gay men. Like, why would he come forward and say that if it wasn't true sort of thing? So the tendency to believe a male who's perpetrated by another male and old myths that gay men sexually offend often. Yeah. I think of like when Terry Cruz came forward and really wasn't believed or taken seriously when he said that he was sexually assaulted by a Hollywood executive. I wonder how that would have flipped if Terry Cruz was a gay man, would we have believed him then? I just think it's so interesting. This is like super interesting. I really <laughs> almost look yeah. into this a little bit deeper. So I think there is something along those lines at play here, but also bottom line, People don't believe women. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't know how to be more sort of blunt than that and succinct, but I, it, it's really an interesting thing to think about. What, what are some of your thoughts?
0: The whole issue with Terry Crews was was heartbreaking. Yeah. And I thought he handled it incredibly well, Same. incredibly well. But in the example you gave about Kevin Spacey, it's not only that it's a male accuser, it's that the accusation is a man against wow. a man, um, a man who was gay and still even in this day and time, is seen as outlaw or other. Mm-hmm. You know, Spacey was closeted, has been for a long time. And I think that due to toxic masculinity and patriarchy, which does exist, Spacey is in a way considered to be worse than a man who perpetrates against women because the heteronormative community still sees a gay man as an aberration. You know, I still have conversations with straight men and women who will look at male on female sex power politics and they'll shrug their shoulders and go, well, I mean, he's a guy. So, you know, boys will be boys. So that that still happens even in this day of talking about the Me Too movement. And you, you know, just your jaw drops. Sure. I, I think it's complex. I like you said, people don't believe women and they'll believe men more readily, even though the, the example you gave with Terry Cruz, I think people just couldn't go, wait, 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 this big guy, that can't be true because if right, it had happened heterosexual to him, guy. he would have laid. He would have punched him out. He would have killed him right on the spot. Which is another example of to- toxic masculinity and what your your expectations are of someone who's been. And that's um, what he was so good at
1: articulating afterwards was I didn't come forward because of the power and authority that this Hollywood executive had just in the power differential, the power base of him over me. So I thought that right.
0: was great. I mean, there's also another thing going on here. Look, Hollywood insiders knew about Spacey for years. And, you know, had the movement not caught up with him, he would still be pulling this kind of stuff.
1: So in a lot of ways, yeah. he is like a Weinstein where people just knew about Absolutely. it. And yeah, it's very interesting, the double standards here, because I I can't think of like a case of alleged sexual assault with two women. I feel like we haven't heard about that. So we don't really have one to compare perhaps. And then have there been any where a man has accused a woman and wasn't believed or was believed? None are. Re-
0: oh, no, there's, there's more of those. We just have, we haven't, you know what, maybe that's like, that's an episode mm-hmm. that's, we'll have to, yeah, there are some of those that have been, that have come up. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away. Yeah. yeah. There's some good ones. We'll talk. Sure. About. Sure.
1: Good question. Thanks for making us think. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. Go ahead. TRH Cabana 3 from Instagram. For both of you, do your day jobs know that you do the podcast? If so, do they care that you do it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, I, as, as part of my job, I have to have permission to do any outside work, anything that I'm going to collect even the smallest income on. So we have to get a work permit for that sort of stuff. So I do have a work permit that my boss approves, and then it kind of goes up the chain at the department and that gets approved. So I've had that since we've started. I keep it a little closer to the vest, a couple of people that I direct colleagues that I am close with, know all about it. I haven't told absolutely everyone. I know people have found out about it. It's much different when I walk into Scott's office. <laughs> I walk into your floor and people are like, hey, Shiloh, love the last episode.
0: <laughs> I know, everybody knows. Everybody knows. Um, the law enforcement I work with are are know it and are really supportive of it. And we're actually a bit put off when we did our first live event here in LA. And I, I mean, I was we were sort of still f- testing the waters yeah. and I didn't know who, who all to invite. And like, I mean, there were some colleagues of mine that were hurt. They were oh, like, the walking why did you, they
1: wanted to come on. Is that what you're talking no, about? When,
0: when, when Rebecca came out oh, and we were over in silver, Lake, yeah. you know, and they was, wanted
1: like, invites. I
0: mean, yeah. Oh. Which I totally would have given. I just, you it's know, we we should have planned it. Yeah. But I, you know, my, my, colleagues from both agencies I work with are very supportive. But the organization that does employ me has a really labyrinthine administrative ladder with not only really great and wonderful people, but also some people that are strange. Mm. And I just feel like it's better to keep a low profile as much as I can, although most of y'all know that low profile is a relative term for me, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> I'm a big personality. Right. I'm very passionate about my work in the community, and I'm passionate about community mental health and community safety. So it's sort of Among some people, I'm sure it doesn't even register, but it's better for me to be able to say, I am Dr. So-and-so in this job and I'm Dr. Scott here and there is a separation. And also my, I have to report additional work, but I don't have to seek approval for it. Mm. Like they, my union would have a big problem with them saying, well, no, you can't do that. Yeah. Because you would have to have just cause for why it's a conflict of interest or why it's problematic, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that, you know that would not be very wise of anybody to touch it. Because we're not doing anything that is controversial right. or problematic. Right. We're 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 incredibly ethical about what we do. So yeah,
1: and the, the consideration that I have with mine is where I work is also where my potential clients are. So. I have a caseload of clients that are still in the agency for whom I work that I also have other roles with, like almost like an IO psychologist in yeah. consultation roles. And then like the crisis negotiation stuff, I'm team members with those people. So it is a little bit different where you're just, you know, you're, you're not working with clientele. It's like a case, you kind of have a stack of cases on your desk, but,
0: but my cases are very very distant from my day to day life. Right. Like you, right. yeah, there's, there's a, it's a big difference there. So, yep. so yeah, I mean, it's, they kind of know it. The people that have, that, that have found out, I'm actually humbled by how supportive and impressed they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, and like, it's very humbling and I'm so um, happy to, to have the, yep. the support that I get. So yeah, we're lucky.
1: All right. Last question from pearly mind seven on Instagram. How often do you work with offenders who seem genuinely rehabilitated.
0: Oh, that's really good.
1: (laughs) It's really good. I guess I've never felt so confident that I would say someone was 100% rehabilitated Mm -hmm. because I I know the potential human behavior and, you know, one badly handled trigger, even with all the therapy in the world could result in old habits for people, which might be criminal. So yeah, I, this is a hard question because You just don't ever know. And working in risk assessment for so long, you've had pretty good confidence with people, but also you've had very low risk offenders that have gone on to do terrible things. I've been very confident. Here's how I know. When I'm very confident, there's a couple of things working there. One, that person has committed an offense with low recidivism rates. So I'm going to go with kind of the numbers at first. They're not for sure numbers, but I'm looking at that. And two, that person has worked really hard in therapy to learn about their previous motives and were actively applying the skills to avoid getting into those same high-risk situations again, well in advance. So it wasn't like, oh, okay, I'm just not going to do this anymore. And, you know, cross your fingers and white knuckle it. They really were wanting to understand themselves and putting that into play every day. Even when they made mistakes, you know, they would come back and say to me that I didn't use an intervention when this, this was a red flag that I should have. And that to me, if someone is critically thinking about it that much, then I know that they, they truly don't want to go back to jail or they don't want to create another victim.
0: Critically thinking about it and then telling on themselves. Yeah that's doing the work marker there right yeah absolutely so i
1: I guess that's my best way to to answer the question i i can't i really like i can't put a percentage on this it's i don't even know what to think of the word rehabilitation sometimes to be honest
0: yeah for me it's more often than you would think Mm -hmm. because i'm not working specifically in the sex offender milieu you know i was really surprised by many of the men that i worked with in prison but of course the real test is when they get freedoms back in the community? Yep. And are they going to be able to maintain a non-criminal lifestyle? You know, if they came from generation after generation of criminality that was accepted within the family dynamic, how are they going to manage that? Yeah, what are they going you know, back that's to? Like, yeah, exactly. That's like somebody who is, you know, in recovery from substance use or substance addiction, and they learn all these great skills in recovery, and then they go home to the same environment. With people treating them the same way and having the same expectations of their behavior, that's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. You know, working with sex offenders that are pedo or hebophilically oriented, you know, that's a completely different game and it's a different rubric that, that you have to work with with that within that world. I'm never comfortable stating unequivocally that someone is completely rehabilitated, signed, sealed, deliver, no more monitoring. Because it's a different, it's a completely different thing. But for many of the cases, I do believe that there's hope for a good outcome with a successful prognosis as long as they're engaged, as long as they're engaged and developing insight. One of the big problems that you will find in working in community mental health and in prison populations is a a real lack of insight. And sometimes that is organic and unchangeable. And sometimes it's a matter of they were just never taught to be critical of their own thought processes. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is absolutely vital in today's world in parenting. In today's world that is so different from the past, teaching your children critical thinking skills is just absolutely vital. Yes. It's vital to the survival of our species oh my God. at this point.
1: Yeah, we're seeing where that dip is uh, paying off.
0: Now. Clearly.
1: <laughs> but also, I want to clarify with this question that, you know, our experience, Scott working in a prison population, a state prison population, and then the folks that I've worked with with high risk, violent, sexual crimes, these are pretty serious things that we're talking about. There are people that engage in other much lower. Lower risk, less violent crimes. That rehabilitation is much more prevalent
0: and oh, comes absolutely. much more easy. Yes, thank you. So, just thank you for that.
1: To put a caveat on there of our experience with with these folks. So, so there we go. We've wrapped up another listener question round. Good
0: questions. And I know because we're out of time, but we still have some more. Maybe we'll cover them in a follow up. Yeah, um, we'll we we time. have
1: those research heavy quote unquote questions left, yeah. but. Guys, we'll, yeah. we'll get to those later. It might be great info for a live stream as well, which will be cool, especially because they're asked by... Patreon numbers and so they get that on their feed. If you're ever considering joining Patreon for us, please do. You get all of our live streams on a podcast feed way earlier than before it hits YouTube. We send you a swag pack of stickers and magnets and buttons and coasters and whatever we have going on. We have some new stickers. We enter you in a monthly drawing for a piece of merch. We also do a shout out on for you on all of our live streams and First access to a lot of things. Scott and I are in the early stages of planning another walking tour in the spring. So kind of to celebrate our birthdays. It'll be around Gemini season. Yeah. So you get first dips on that sort of stuff, as well as watch parties and some some other fun, fun interaction. So we would love it if you would consider being one of our Patreon family members.
0: That'd be great. Thanks, guys. Yes.
1: Thanks so much. Um, everyone.
0: Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>
1: thanks, y'all. All right. We hope we'll see you at CrimeCon, but we'll have yes. some episodes leading up to that. Of course, we should definitely do some sort of Vegas-themed episode.
0: Oh, oh no. Okay. That has to be done. Yeah, we'll do that in the follow-up. Yes. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks.
1: Bye. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawlspace Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions.
0: The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube.
1: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at la-not-so-podcast, on Twitter at la-not-so-pod, and on Facebook at la-not-so-confidential.
0: Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash la-not-so-podcast. So you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
1: Thanks for listening and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch.
0: Thanks for listening and join us next time.